electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is The Big Show, Fast Money. I am Dominic Chu, in for Melissa Lee tonight. The trader lineup, Dan Nathan, next to me here. Karen Feinerman, next to me here. But then Tim Seymour and Guy Adami on remote, as you can see there in our screen. Tonight on the show, we are breaking down the banks. Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan both falling today, as you can see there after reporting their results. There's another big slate of bank earnings coming your way tomorrow morning. We've got your setup coming up on the show. Plus, Boeing hitting new headwinds. That stock falling as the company cuts production of its 787 airplane. We'll tell you how our traders are playing this name. It was down 4% in trading today, a big drag for the Dow. And then later on, Bitcoin falling again today. The crypto is now down 13% in just the past month. We'll break down the move with Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein. He joins us exclusively to talk crypto coming up. But we start with a stealth tech rally. The sector, the only one in the S&P 500 to end the day with gains. And take a look at some of the moves of the big names in that particular industry. You can see Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet. Yes, it's technically com services, but still you get the idea. They may have ended off their highs of the day, but still they set new records at the closing bell, even as the broader markets pulled back from their all-time highs. So what do we make of the big moves in tech? I'm going to turn right now to my right, because it's Karen Feinerman right there. F. Maga and everything else that we've been talking about the last <laughs> couple of days, it was, it was coming really full steam today. What do you make of the record highs? I'm not sure quite what to make of it, actually. I mean, I, you know, I like Facebook. I like Alphabet, Amazon. I, I, the, only, the only F, MAGA, N I don't own is Netflix. So um, I'm happy to see they were all trading higher. They are kind of that mix of growth, but also, I think, decent value. So, you know, you can kind of pick your poison. High rates or low rates, they could sort of fall into either one. So by the end of the day, though, they did sell off a little bit. But, you know, this is a much longer-term story. I'm happy with them. I'm staying with them. To me, it was more interesting about the banks, which we'll get to more later, and the other sort of interest rate-sensitive stuff, the post-pandemic, the pre-pandemic, you know, where are we? That was sort of more underneath the surface today. That was sort of more interesting to me and confusing, actually. Yeah, it, it's kind of reminiscent of what we saw in August, right? We saw that the mega cap tech really asserted itself um, and really had this crescendoing top in early September. And it was the sort of thing where a lot of people were scratching their heads and, and wondering, like, why are these stocks making new highs every day? Why are we seeing all this upside call activity? Well, we know what it was. It was a large fund. It was SoftBank buying all these out-of-the-money calls. But, it, you know, it took a long time for a lot of these names to recover. You had a very sharp um, decline in September. And then many of them, Apple and Amazon, just made new all-time highs for the first time since September 2nd. So I see this move into mega cap tech is slightly defensive in a way that we know that a lot of these growthier names that are maybe unprofitable, recent IPOs, some SPACs, those sorts of things, they've all had big runs since May lows. I mean, there's no shortage of names that are up 30, 40 percent, um, you, you know, including names like Zoom, CrowdStrike, that sort of stuff. So to me, the move into the F MAGA complex, a little defensive. I don't love 
love the price action right before earnings. It's not a great setup. You said it last night. We're going to talk about the banks, Karen. That was the one thing that you didn't like about the banks is that they've run hard into those earnings. And I don't think this is going to be a great scenario if they run for the next couple of weeks into the earnings. So, so Guy, I mean, for, for, for the better part, we'll call it a, a decade plus at this point. It's been the safety trade. I've, I've heard traders literally refer to mega cap technology as the safety <clears> trade. Does it still seem that way to you, given the fact that we've hit an all-time highs for all of these? The trend has been your friend for now, call it 11 years. I absolutely think it's a safety trade. I don't know if we've deemed it that, but we've talked about it forever. I mean, all of these stocks that you just mentioned are their own unique individual story, and you can pretty, ma- pretty much make a compelling case for each to continue to go higher. I'm sure Karen would agree with this, and we brought it up a number of times. You know, I can make a pretty compelling argument that Google should be trading $3,000 a share based on their $100 they're going to earn and the 30 multiple, which they probably deserve given their visibility and given their EPS growth. And as I've said a hundred times on this show, you know, there's nothing, nothing I like about Facebook other than the stock. And you can make a pretty compelling case for that stock to be close to $400 a share. So I think they'll all continue to run into earnings. And I do think the dance point, they are defensive. I actually think in a perverse way, uh, the move in yields today higher probably are positive for the names we just mentioned. All right. If that's the case, I mean, Tim, let's talk a little bit about what exactly then would be the reason why you'd be maybe a little bit cautious about what's happening right now. Karen mentioned it. The setup is predominantly positive going into earnings season right now. It's the most consequential sector out there. What do you think? Is this a safe place to be adding to positions in tech? Well, first of all, Dom, great to have you. Second of all, Dom, you, know, you have a case where the, the, the companies that really outperformed on their first quarter earnings and every one of these fan companies or F magas, um, you know, despite even what we know about the companies and the moves that they had, uh, they all posted extraordinary earnings and they are all giving you growth at a time when, look, the, the, the perverse thing about today's CPI number was it, it at least, yeah, yields finished a little bit higher. There was a bad 30 year auction that may have had something to do with that. Uh, but ultimately, the curve's been flattening. And, and, and so what it's telling you is, to me, that, that, again, the market is preparing for more Fed, even if a lot of this move has come since the Fed you know, made their call it a hawkish statement in mid-June, but that, that ultimately uh, the outperformance of the slower growth, and I do mean you know, these mega cap tech names, are well positioned for that. Um, I also would just make an argument that we've seen a ton of rotation over the last year. Uh, all we did was talk about banks and industrials until a month ago. So, you know, I, I don't think this is that crazy, but it, it's, a, it's a slower growth trade, to be clear. And look at, look at small caps, which are a high growth proxy or a growth uh, economic growth proxy, they've underperformed the triple Qs by uh, almost 18 percent since when the bond market, so the long end of the yield curve, I should say, a- actually peaked. Um, so, you know, you're, you're getting the sense that as yields go lower, that's the fear of the of real growth happening. And of course, mega cap tech is going to be defensive. Yeah, you know, we call the show Fast Money, and often we'd like to kind of make some fast moves here. I'll just say this. When you look at Amazon and Apple breaking out last week, those first new highs since September 2nd of 2020, be careful here, people, because, you know, September 20 was a really bad year 
for Apple, or bad, bad month for Apple and Amazon. Apple was down 20%. Amazon was down 18%. And there's been numerous double-digit peak-to-trough declines since then in these names. They've obviously been range-bound. But I guess the point is, buying a new breakout after a sick move like we've had of 15% or so in two months in two of the largest names in the entire market is probably a tough way to make money unless you're convinced it's just smooth sailing and straight up from here. What does the interest rate picture look like, Karen? I, I, I mean, over the last, call it five or six months, when, when rates were heading higher, we talked about this notion that, you know, people talked about the capital asset pricing model. They talked about assumptions for valuations given rising interest rates. And that was the justification for the sell-off we saw in certain growth areas of the market. Technology names were some of those names there. Now you have interest rates falling. Is that the real tailwind? Are we still in a regime where lower interest rates are going to boost those technology valuations? I think they're going to be the ballast for them, right? I don't know if they'll boost. I think part of the reason they came in so hard, the valuations were crazy, right? They were crazy. They're supported by the idea of low rates means, you know, an infinite multiple on earnings. But some of them don't have earnings, don't have, you know, earnings in the near or intermediate future. So also, a lot of them were pandemic stocks that really did well, right? That were just tailor-made. Zoom, obviously, is the poster child for that kind of company. But to me, they, rates being here or a little higher, they're still really expensive. I, so it may be a ballast for some, but still valuations for, you know, on a lot of them are very, very stretched still. So, I mean, I, I mean, Tim, if you take a look at that, are, are there key parts of that tech trade, that communication services trade that, that still act well in your mind? We, we've talked a lot about the, you know, the fact that some traders have looked towards semiconductors as a leading indicator, possibly, or, or maybe cloud computing or software stocks. Are, are those still places that people can say, hey, these are the tea leaves that foretell maybe better times or worse times ahead for the overall sector? So semiconductors clearly have have led the market higher. And I think, you know, we I think we had this uh, conversation a couple weeks back or so. Most important charts, et cetera, et cetera. And and I think the semiconductors were mine. I I think they've underperformed the triple Qs since that Fed meeting by a bit. And and again, some of that uh, the output of that meeting was that the Fed will be more in play uh, and that could put some growth. But you absolutely have to follow uh, the high growth tech components, the communications uh, side of the tech world, I, I think, is is a little bit, you know, more name specific. And, and, and I think as we get then into the software part of the tech trade, also the, the fact that we've gotten to a place where rates are moving lower, you've seen more of a push into these high multiple names and even some of the software companies, even though I kind of like a CRM, I don't love the multiple, although it's better than some, I think they will continue to outperform in this environment. All right. So even though the S&P 500 and Nasdaq are near record highs, they set them today. Investors may want to keep some antacid, Maalox or whatever your choice is handy. Our next guest predicts some near term turbulence in connection with his summer of indigestion call. We are, of course, referring to Tony Dwyer. You know him, Canaccord's chief market strategist. Tony, it's always great to catch up with you. I wonder, you, you heard the conversation from the traders here. Do you feel as though there is that agita, that, that need for a little antacid right now? What exactly would drive some of that volatility that you might be expecting? Well, Don, it's great to, it's great to be with you. So the indigestion has really been here since, since March. So when the market was, what had gotten us cautious and, and caused us to downgrade our tactical view in, in April was surrounding exactly what the team has talked about, the, cr- the crazy excessive move in that economic recovery theme. Remember in March when interest rates were at 174 on the 10-year and everybody thought they were going to go to 2%? 
not being in the banks and the industrials and the materials, it was unthinkable. Now we've taken a lot of the wind out of those sails. I mean, you've had you've given back all of the relative performance of the economic recovery trade in many cases going back to last summer, especially in the materials names. So what had gotten us cautious was weakness there. And that's underneath the surface, Dom. And that is clearly affecting portfolio managers that I talk to because, you know, two days you have the growth trade on and, you know, the cyclicals are getting smoked. And then two days later, it's the opposite. So this volatility is allowing the S&P because of its market weighting. And I'd love to talk about that with you, too, is the market weighting in tech is keeping things elevated. But there's a lot of indigestion. As an example, let's talk about the NASDAQ, which made a new high yesterday. As of today's close, according to my data, only 34% of the NASDAQ composite is above its 50-day moving average, 34%. That's well below half. So, so okay, if you've got a situation where it's not broad-based in terms of participation, there, there are not a lot of stocks really driving things, we've also seen it play out in volumes. We know that the volumes haven't mm-hmm. been ridiculously excessive. We only expect that during extreme bouts of volatility. We haven't really gotten that yet. Is there something to be said about this idea that the summer is just going to be this kind of environment and that people are just going to have to get used to this notion that there could be moves, maybe a percent or so up or down, but that nobody's really playing it? Is anybody really going career long or short this market in July or August? I don't think so, Dom, and I think that's the right course of action. That's why we're we're neutral. We're not betting on the downside and we're not betting big on the short-term upside. This is what happens in a transition. Right. Coming off of the recession low, you had a massive rally in the, in the um, stock market. You had expectations for major economic growth. They came to fruition. That's what happened in two, off the 2003 low. It's what happened off of the 2009 low. You know, almost never before seen rallies with significant anticipation of an economic recovery that culminated in March with a huge move in the cyclicals. That's when rates peak. So I don't every recession is unique. You go into it. You had the SNL crisis. Then you had um, then you had the dot com bust. Then you had the great financial crisis. And of course, now we had the pandemic going into recession is always a unique re- reason that creates a credit crisis. The response to that is always the same. Print as much money as is possible. Give the most fiscal stimulus that's possible. That creates anticipation for a surge in economic activity. Once that's done, which has already taken place earlier this year, it was our whole theme from last summer into early this year. Once that's done, you're in a transition, Don. You go from a transition away from excessive monetary policy, fiscal stimulus. You're going in a transition from peak um, economic anticipation and peak earnings growth. Tony, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. What would it take? What would be the Prilosec, I guess, for your indigestion? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's it. I think we're getting it, Karen. I know it's not happening in the S&P, but I know, you know, you, you've liked the banks in the past. I haven't talked to you recently, but they've been getting hit on a relative basis. You have absolutely creamed the, the financials, the industrials, the materials and the energy. I, and I think what gets me more excited, I, I'm calling this the summer of indigestion that is going to create the year end opportunity. Just like what happened after the corrections in the middle of 2004 and 2010, where you just remove the excesses, we're doing that. And typically, not typically, many times what happens is you deteriorate underneath the market and it finally ends up in the indices. There's two ways that you go down to only two reasons in in my history where I see the market going down more than 10 percent. And that is 
you have anticipation of a recession that takes everything down or you have a market event like a Balmageddon or a flash crash or something where you get this kind of whoosh because a lot of the deterioration has happened underneath. All right. The shopping list was financials, industrials, if you missed that, for Tony Dwyer. Thanks very much, sir. We'll catch up with you soon. Have a good summer. Have a great day, Dom. Thanks, team. See you soon. All right. Let's talk about this guy, Adami. I'm going to throw it out to you first. Are you expecting any real fireworks to the downside in the coming weeks in this summer trade? I've been expecting it for a while. It hasn't come to fruition. You know, and Tony, if you listen and read his work, it's been extraordinarily thoughtful. And you've seen rolling corrections on a number of different things over the you know, last month and a half, two months since he put his piece out. With that said, do I expect it? Absolutely. What I think might be a precursor is something we were talking about at the beginning of the show. I mean, the, one of the Fed's mandates supposed to be stable prices. I mean, you know, whatever. What I'll tell you is you have anything but. I mean, just look at the move in the 10-year yield over the last couple of trading days in percentage terms. Went from 145 to 124 in a straight line, back to 141 pretty much in a straight line. That's not stable to me. If that were equity volatility, we'd lead the show with it. But right now it's manifesting itself in the bond market. The last time that happened, by the way, if you want to go back and look, was the fall of 2019. And that was a precursor to some pretty interesting things early 2020. All right. Speaking of the summer of indigestion, guys, coming up on the show, Boeing losing some altitude in today's trading session after the playmaker cut its delivery target and forecast for its 787 Dreamliner. We are boarding that trade coming up. Get in here. Plus, the financials are at a focus here as bank earnings get underway. A top bank analyst joins us to break down all the action today and the anticipated action tomorrow. So don't go anywhere. Fast Money is back in two. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. As you can see there, shares of American Airlines are on the move in the after-hour session, up by about 1.5%. Let's get out to Phil LeBeau with the details. And Phil, how positive is the news? Uh, it's positive, Don. This is a company that is scheduled to formally release its Q2 results next week. But as you sometimes see companies do, when it's good news, they want it out sooner. So they dropped an 8K within the last hour. We're not going to go through all the numbers, but the important ones are this. They were expecting a loss of 244 a share. That was what the street was expecting. Americans saying it plans to lose between buck 67 and a buck 76 a share when they announce their results next week. Revenue expected to be better than uh, the street was uh, guiding. 7.47 billion is where revenue is expected to come in. The expectation 7.17 billion. And one last stat for you regarding American. A year ago in the second quarter, this company was burning through a hundred million dollars a day. In the second quarter of this year, it was accumulating one million dollars a day. I know a million is not huge, but when you were losing a hundred million dollars a day a year ago, that shows you how far American has come. And really, we've seen that from all the airlines. That's the story with American. Let's transition now and take a look at shares of Boeing, because this was the story today. Shares down at one point more than four and a half percent. I think they ended the day down uh, four, four and a half, what, four point two percent. They were down for the day. This is the company announcing that it is going to be dropping down its monthly production rate for the 787 Dreamliner. Currently at five per month, they're going to temporarily bring it down they're not saying down to zero, but it will come down from five and then gradually rebuild over time. Uh, they are also going to be delivering fewer than half of the 100 787 Dreamliners that are built but not yet delivered. Here's the problem. They have discovered a new issue. This is an issue in the forward pressure bulkhead. We're not going to go into all the details here. We talked with some people who believe that this is not a mechanical issue, and they say it's not a mechanical issue. What it is is an aging issue. Remember, you've got the carbon fiber composite design here. They will be inspecting and reworking those 100 Dreamliners that are in inventory. The time to take care of this, approximately three weeks. So what does Wall Street think about all this? Well, for the most part, analysts were saying not a huge surprise, given that we've seen a number of issues pop up as the FAA and Boeing are working on these issues. A couple of comments that did stand out today. Morgan Stanley saying it's another minor headache that shifts the timeline of deliveries to the right, but does not materially change our investment thesis. Credit Suisse out saying it begs the question why, after 10 years of manufacturing 787s, are all of these production issues suddenly materializing? This news overshadowed what was, frankly, pretty good news when it comes to orders and deliveries from Boeing for the month of June. In terms of orders, it racked up 146, thanks in large part to the 200 MAXs that were ordered by United late in the month. And in terms of deliveries, 45 planes were delivered by Boeing last month. That is the best monthly total for deliveries since March of 2019 when the MAX was grounded. But that news clearly overshadowed by the 787 Dreamliner problems that continue to nag at this company. We'll get their Q2 results in a couple of weeks. Let's see how much the Dreamliner issues change their guidance for the rest of this year. Dom, back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Phil Lebeau, for American Airlines and Boeing there. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about this, guys. I mean, and, and Tim Seymour, I'll, I'll throw this out to you first. If you looked at the action during the regular session, you can see that like three quarters of the Dow's loss today 
was just Boeing by itself. So it was a big drag for the overall Dow trade. Is it something where you say, hey, it's gone down enough, maybe we're buying this dip because the news is just pricing in so much bad stuff already? Well, let's be clear. I mean, the 787 has been a breadwinner for Boeing, and, and this cutback is, is certainly going to have a hit on second-half profitability and free cash flow. And I think that's largely what the street did. Um, remember, we actually got them cutting their guidance on the 787s even last month. So I, I think this trend is is unfortunately uh, been extended, and, and it's not great news. But um, the ultimate story for Boeing is truly not only the order books that I, I think the United story far outweighs the fly Dubai story today also, which was a story that, um, you know, saw some pressure for, for Boeing, which is that an order uh, is going to be downgraded. You had Delta out there also talking about that they were actually going to be leasing used planes from a third party. Um, but it's all about the front of the bus. It's all about transcontinental. These are trends we didn't think were going to improve overnight. I look at that chart on, on Boeing. It, it's been choppy, uh, but that, that, that uptrend off of those lows from late last year is, is intact, even if we're at the bottom end of that trend. Yeah, I would just say if you're looking at trends and uptrends and what's about to break or what might hold. Look at the IYT. Um, you know, despite Guy's fabulous, fabulous power pitch last night on FedEx. On FedEx uh, yeah. I think we all gave a thumbs up there. The IYT, the transports, um, are sitting right on that one-year uptrend, um, you know, down about 9% from those recent highs a few months ago. I mean, some of these trades kind of topped out. And when you think about, listen, there's some things that are very unique to Boeing um, that were going on pre-pandemic about their planes and their orders, that sort of thing. But I guess my view very simply is that we're going to see a lots of fits and starts with, you know, Karen and I were just talking about this before the show, with all these supply chains and all the demand and and kind of all of it coming together at some point for a post-pandemic normal. And, you know, I just don't think this is going to be particularly linear and get ready to hear this story about a lot of different industrials over the next year. I'm just thinking at the airlines. I mean, I think they're the opposite of the, you know, we talked about the banks running up into earnings. If you look at what's happened to the airlines, they have just gotten crushed in the last, you know, six weeks maybe. So that's a setup that's decent probably for earnings. We'll see. I mean, we have that after market news, but Delta, I think, tomorrow morning. So we'll get a sense. If I don't own them, but I would be happier going into earnings like this, down a lot than up. Who knows how much fuel cost plays into that discussion as well, too, guys. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here is what's coming up next. Bank earnings are underway. So which name should you be cashing in on? We're breaking down the bank trade next. Plus, Baba goes bonanzas. The e-commerce giant jumping in today's session. But what's behind the big move? We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. What you're seeing there are shares of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, both down today, by the way, in the red, despite posting better than expected earnings before the opening bell today. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon discussing the results in an exclusive CNBC interview just a while ago on the closing bell. Take a listen. I think broadly wealth 
uh, we're not going to see the level of activity we saw, for example, in the first quarter, and that was clear by the two earnings reports that you saw today. But I do think that there are two things going on. One, I think that fundamentally activity levels, given the environment, the size of the overall wallet is larger. I think the large players, there's also been a consolidation. So I look at our position. We've grown our market share very, very meaningfully. Since our investor day, I think we've grown our market share 160 basis points in our markets business. And so we feel very good about the way we're positioned. All right. I mean, some would consider him Goldman Sachs, a bellwether for kind of larger parts of the financial sphere. I wonder, Karen, whether or not you feel as constructive about the banks. Your comments yesterday said you didn't really like the setup going into these earnings reports. I didn't like the setup, but, you know, I'm long. I stayed long. I'm not going to trade around it because I think it might be down a tiny bit. So I I liked what they had to say. I liked what Jamie Dimon has to say because I always like what Jamie Dimon has to say. (laughs) But in terms of I want to hear how he felt about the economy. And he was pretty optimistic on loan growth. Uh, he was pretty optimistic on, you know, the GDP growth. He's he's more of a um, he, he thinks interest rates will be higher. So that's good for banks. But, you know, there were a lot of things that were interesting. There was the very huge investment banking revenues, which were gigantic. So someone like a Goldman Sachs will also have that. Um, they had trading revenues that were lower than we thought. They had reserve release, which we thought the credit quality was outstanding. And then there's the pressure on that interest margin, which we knew uh, and will persist for a little while. But hopefully there'll be loan growth. Dan and I were talking about something before the, the show about the amount of loan growth in their asset management business. You know, about I don't know if this is all billionaires borrowing against their assets to just lever up to be in the market. I'm not really sure. But there was a lot to like except for the setup going in. So if you didn't own any, if I didn't own any, I'd be buying it today. I think we'll see some similar things from the banks. To the extent that they have great investment banking, that'll be Goldman Sachs experience the same thing. They have a great investment banking team. City does as well. Yeah, you only mentioned one part of that uh, loan growth issue. So there was up 21% in their wealth management group, but it was down 3% in the, corner, in, the, in the quarter in their consumer group. And I think that's pretty interesting if you think about it, because that was one of the concerns going into, the, uh, going into all of these corners uh, was about... A, the health of the consumer. We know that they've built up huge balances over the last, you know, let's say 12 to 16 months or something like that. But that's a huge wealth transfer. What happens when that, you know, you know, goes away? And then um, obviously, um, you know, we're seeing some of these backups with some of these purchases and large items right now. You can't buy a house. You want to buy a house. You can't buy a car. You want to buy a car. Um, who knows what that looks like on the other side of this thing? And, um, you know, I'm not just so sure how great consumer balance sheets are going to be six months from all right. So for more on that reaction to big bank earnings, at least early on this week here, let's bring in Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, is it all a story about, you know, easy and hard comps all at the same time? Easy comps for things like the economic recovery, hard comps on things like trading revenues during the volatility last year. What exactly stood out to you? You're right, Dom. When you look at the comps, depending on what type of business line, they are, easy, are either easy or difficult. And if you compare the trading results to the first quarter levels of 21, those were difficult comps. Investment banking, as you guys have already talked about, especially on a year-over-year basis, those comps were quite strong. But what's interesting to us, and I think Karen summed it up well with Jamie Dimon's comments, he was quite optimistic about the outlook 
for the economy. And that tells us loan growth will start to materialize later this year and next year. In particular, if you look at J.P. Morgan's credit card receivables, this is the primary source of consumer borrowing. On an end-of-period basis, they were up 7%, 28% annualized. So we anticipate you're going to see more of that from the other companies like Bank America, Wells Fargo, and Citi that report, as you know, in the next day or two. Hey, Gerard, it's Tim. It's, it's frustrating as a bank investor to see the, those reserves that rolled off the three billion or so for J.P. Morgan get shrugged off as if they're a non-event, uh, don't really matter. And yet when they threw them on during record profitability a year ago, it was seen, wow, banks have a lot of credit exposure. Who knows what's going to happen? And they were punished for them. Um, is this a del- will there be a delayed reaction for investors here? Because, again, this is profitability that was held back last year. I get it. Um, but ultimately, it also sends a message that credit is much, much better for these guys. You, know, you, you said it well. And in fact, it, you're so right. You know, when they take the big hits like they did a year ago, it hurts the stocks, but they don't seem to get the benefit when they bring it back into revenues. And now we all understand that it's one time in nature. But you said something very important. The credit quality is incredibly good. J.P. Morgan Chase had a 29 basis point charge-off ratio. I can't remember the last time it was that low. So it's not only the reserve releasing, but what it implies, which is credit is very strong, and that's very positive for all the banks, including J.P. Morgan, over the next 12 months. Gerard, yep. we've had this conversation before. I think pre-economic crisis, you know, some of these banks, specifically like a J.P. Morgan, would trade close to three times tangible book. Here we are today, $69, two and a quarter times tangible book. What's the right multiple for the premium brand JP Morgan in the environment that we find ourselves in right now? It's really a good question because, as you know, JP Morgan does trade at a premium to the group. And the group, when you go back to the year end 2017, which I would suggest was the first normal period post-financial crisis, because as you remember, the world changed following the financial crisis for all the banks due to the Dodd-Frank legislation. So when you go back to year in 17, they traded on an average of 2.2 times tangible, 1.6 times stated, which implies because of J.P. Morgan's premium to the group, getting to a three times tangible is not that crazy. Now, granted, we need to see rates move. We need to see loan growth come back. We're not calling for that in the next three to six months. But if this economy comes back, rates come back, loan demand comes back, and we're sitting here at the end of 22, then those valuations are not that far-fetched. Gerard, before we let you go, I always like to ask, uh, is there a favorite part of that banking spectrum that you like? Money centers, investment banks, the regionals? What's standing out to you right now? Right now, Don, I would say the universals or money centers, Bank Americas, the, the J.P. Morgans, et cetera, because they have the diversity of revenue. You get the strength of the investment banking business, but at the same time, you get the consumer strength that we foresee coming in the second half of the year. And then later this year and into next year, you get the commercial loan growth as the supply chain problems finally you know, work themselves out and the demand for loans starts to accelerate again. All right. Gerard Cassie, RBC, thank you very much. Have a nice day, sir. You too. All right, let's you. trade this guy. Let's trade this guys because I I I I know the thesis for why you would want to get into the universals because of what Gerard Casty just said. Karen, is it still hold? Does it still hold? Can you still get in with these banks and feel like it's comfortable from a valuation perspective? Yeah, I look at like a J.P. Morgan, and I think that it's banks always trade cheap to the market. They have a cheaper P.E. They always have, but 
the the amount of cheapness is now pretty high. So they have they don't they normally trade tighter than they do to the market. So I'm comfortable owning J.P. Morgan is my biggest, but I have Citibank, uh, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, and Morgan Stanley, which is a little different animal. Yeah, I, I, I am uh, short of the XLF. I just don't find them to be that compelling here. I know Guy would make a valuation case for Citigroup, but you look at Citigroup and the way that stock has traded, um, it just hasn't seen an uptick in, in about a month or so, and it's probably the most off its highs of the major, major money centers. So um, I don't think you're going to see results out of Bank America or Citigroup that get um, stimulate the group. They're not going to say anything more than J.P. Morgan and Gold. I think J.P. Morgan and Goldman is about as good as it gets. We're going to see a good report out of Morgan Stanley, and then you start thinking about the back half of this year. And I'll just go back to what China did on Friday. What did they do? They cut the reserve requirements for their banks. They've already had their V-shaped recovery. So all this um, excitement about what might happen in late Q3 and Q4 in our economy, I think that it probably uh, makes a little sense to take a step back here, especially with the stock market. At can all I time. just fight with Dan for one second? Fight, fight, please. Okay. So Go. let me ask you then, is there any price or any multiple set of multiples, dividend yield, anything at which you would buy City? Well, I, I just don't know. I mean, let's look at the relative performance to Bank and JP and obviously in Wells Fargo. I think that's a name that you're long. I mean, I suspect it's going to be worse than the, the other ones. And I think you just buy JP Morgan. You know, 150 in JP Morgan is a big level. It's a level it's held over the last and forget about valuation. I'm just talking about from a trading perspective. Um, let's see if they can hold. It feels like it's going back there in the not so distant future. And they've just had these massive runs, this outperformance since November. But don't forget, people, before the vaccines, banks were making lows, right? Like they literally were making Everything new. was making No, lows. they weren't, Karen. Back in October, I mean, just think of most of the market oh. had come off of the lows. <clears throat> Banks were still going lower. So when you think about, oh, that's great, loan loss reserves. And Tim asked a great question of that analyst. But think about how many trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus were thrown at this crisis to get us where we are. And we're talking about, oh, this is a good valuation for this bank or whatever. We had the same conversation about Wells Fargo a year ago. It was down, down, down. Everything yeah. was wrong with it. You know, there were structural problems. Well, I wasn't telling you to sell it there. Okay. Yeah, and I, if anything, in this fall, I got very constructive on the banks for the for the, the easiest reason that. for the I, easiest I, I reasons that. that their sentiment was so bad and the valuations were so cheap. So why wouldn't you buy them down there? But here, I don't find them that. Good. I would just say that the, the the bank trade has been this consensus value pick for a long time now, and it's, it's only really started to kind of take off over the last six or nine months or so. So if it has momentum, that's that's great. But all right. So we got a lot more, by the way, okay? We have a pair of can't-miss bank interviews coming your way tomorrow. We're going to hear from Bank of America Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan, first on CNBC. And then you've got Wells Fargo's Chief Investment Officer. It all starts tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. So if you want to talk banks, you want to get insight from the guys who know it best, apparently... You've got to turn in, tune in tomorrow to catch those big back interviews, B of A and Wells Fargo as well. Well, coming up, Alibaba jumping in today's session. The Chinese e-commerce giant climbing 2% on the day. We'll break down the move higher straight ahead. Plus, one investment firm is making a big move in the crypto space. We're bringing you the details in just a few moments. Fast Money is back right after this break. Okay, welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Alibaba, topping the tape today, climbing about 2% in the regular session. The stock is rebounding slightly from days' worth of losses as Chinese regulators continue their crackdown on big technology companies. So, Tim, Alibaba is pretty much the proxy that many American investors have for just the Chinese Internet market overall. How are you trading it? 
Look, I'm trading it from the long side, but I, I'm as frustrated as anybody. And I've been wrong on being long for the last six months. And, and obviously, we were having that breakout moment and really uh, around the Ant Financial both IPO scuttling, dismantling, 11th hour uh, began a series of, of very difficult headlines for this company as it related to the regulator. So antitrust and otherwise, um, I, I, you know, and they look, they made a settlement. They did some of the right things. They're saying certainly the right things. They have no choice. Um, the question here is really for a company that, that whose core business is growing at about 20 percent uh, and the multiple to me, you know, somewhere around 28, 29 times forward. Look, I think this is getting to be extreme long term value. The, the community marketplace business, I think, is where they're going to show some strength. It's certainly there's heavy investments there as well. Um, but but look, I'm not I'm not jumping out of this trade. I, I, I think it's been uh, a very difficult run. And if you don't believe that the Chinese regulators uh, are, are going to understand the importance of this, call it a, a national champion company, even if at times they've run ahead of the country, then you should get out t- right now. Um, I don't believe that that's what's going on here. Um, I think the uptrend on the stock, excuse me, the downtrend on the stock, you need to break 230 before you feel like you've actually started to see a breakout from this. I think we've got we've to wait through this. It's down 17%, guys, over the last 12 months. All right, coming up, we are talking with the CEO of Grayscale Investments as the company takes a big step forward in the crypto space. We'll tell you what the details are coming up. Plus, talk about a Java jolt. Shares of Starbucks hitting a new all-time high today, and that has options traders, yes, sipping on that stock. We've got more on that trade when Fast Money returns after this. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Bitcoin. I shouldn't say shares, tokens, coins, coins of Bitcoin falling. You can see they're about 1% right now, 32,005, roughly the trade there. The crypto is down now more than 7% this month. But our next guest is hoping that's about to turn around. We are talking with Grayscale Investments, taking a big step today in converting its Bitcoin trust, GBTC, into an ETF product, announcing an exclusive partnership with BNY Mellon. For more, let's bring in Michael Sonnenschein, CEO of Grayscale Investments. It's always great to talk with you. Let's talk a little bit about whether or not you're worried right now about the sideways slash downturn that we've seen in Bitcoin itself. Great to be here, Dom. I think investors are used to this type of volatility uh, within the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And I actually would say that more often than not, Investors use pullbacks or bulls in price opportunistically, really as a time to maybe average down on their position or, you know, maybe reinitiate positions they previously had. So if that's the case, we would see some kind of a step into buy. Yet right now, one of the things that stands out to me, being a former fund guy in a, in a, in a previous life, is the amount of discount that we see in terms of the share price for GBTC to the value of the underlying trade. Some people call it discount to net asset value. It's trading at some of the deepest discounts that we've seen in years at this point. What does it exactly tell you as an asset manager about the sentiment around Bitcoin and other parts of the crypto space? That's exactly right. Uh, GBTC is trading today at a discount to its net asset value. And what we've started to see is a lot of institutions and smart money move into that really thinking that a dollar deployed into buying GBTC at a discount to NAV will actually allow them to control more Bitcoin with that investment than if they were to buy it in the spot market. 
I think many of these investors also recognize that we are deeply committed to converting GBTC to an ETF. And so today, thinking about what we're doing with BNY Mellon and really advancing our efforts towards an ETF, investors know that ultimately that discount would be arbitraged away as the fund would be trading back at NAV in an ETF format. So we, we should call out uh, maybe some props here to, to BNY Mellon. They were one of the first large financial institutions to say that they were going to start looking more seriously at incorporating cryptocurrencies into some of their platforms. So it perhaps makes sense that you're partnering with them. I, I guess maybe I'm curious if you could just take us through and, and, and the other viewers and listeners out there what the difference is between the grayscale Bitcoin trust as it exists today versus mm-hmm. what it would be like as an ETF product? Well, GBTC, uh, which is the ticker symbol for Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, is a publicly traded passive Bitcoin strategy, just purely invested in Bitcoin. The fund has been around since 2013, traded publicly since 2015, and became an SEC reporting company in early 2020. And so it has all the makings that one would see in an ETF, except for two items that remain. Number one, GBTC would move to a national securities exchange, such as the NYSE or NASDAQ. And then there would also be regulatory relief provided to the product, such that there could be simultaneous creations and redemptions. So investors who own GBTC today or own GBTC anytime between now and when it does convert to an ETF, in fact, would just simply own the ETF upon the conversion. So a couple steps left to go, but we really are excited about what we're doing with BNY Mellon and are, again, really committed to making sure that we move the product to an ETF when regulators are ready for it. All right. Michael Sonnenshine at Grayscale, thank you very much. Please come back and update us on that traffic on your end of things. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Let's trade it, guys. I mean, Guy Adami, I'll go to you with this because I honestly I'm trying to figure out whether or not this is any kind of a hiccup for the overall crypto industry. Does the fact that Bitcoin's not doing anything right now really take away some of the shine? Feels that way. A lot of people listen, the people that love the asset will say it's building a base here. The naysayers will say that the fact that it's been here for so long means we have another leg lower. I have no idea. I don't think it's trading particularly well. And in terms of the ETF, by no means am I an expert in this field whatsoever. But, you know, I can make a pretty cogent argument. I think that the best thing that happened to the gold market was the gold ETF. And the worst thing that happened to the gold market was the gold ETF. And my sense is you might see similar here in Bitcoin. Again, you know, the scarcity value is one of the things that Bitcoin fanatics really get around. You're sort of taking that away with an ETF, in my opinion. So it'll be interesting to see how this trades over the next couple of weeks. All right, guys, coming up on the show, Starbucks hanging a new all-time high today, and that has options traders betting that even more gains are brewing. Fast Money is back after this. Welcome back. Check out Starbucks bringing up another record high today, bringing that options market to a boil. Let's get to Mike Co. with the options action. Mike, what did you see today? Yeah, so Starbucks traded more than three times its average daily call volume today. And one of the most active options we saw were the July 120s that expired at the end of this week. Over 20,500 of those traded for just over 60 cents. Buyers of those calls obviously betting that the strength we saw in the stock today could continue through the end of the week. The company reports on the 27th. Goldman recommended some call buying. We saw some August 120 calls trading as well, Dom. 
All right, so Tim, let's take a look at this. 120 is almost at the money right now. The shares are 119.55. What exactly do you think? Is this something worth buying right now, Starbucks? I'm long, so I'm buying it uh, every night, as Karen says, when I go home. I, I, I think I look at the, the, the ticket sizes, and so the, the comps that are brutal, but the ticket sizes that continue to grow, and I mean brutal as in they're tough. Um, but the margin improvement here for U.S. comps that were up 9%, uh, international has been slightly weaker, and I think that's going to show you some surprise here. So uh, tough time to own it valuation-wise, but I, I go nowhere. I, I love what they're doing. Guy, are you buying what they're brewing? Yeah, because Tim's right. The comps are tough. Valuation has been a concern, but it's been a concern for a while. And if you've been to Starbucks recently, which I have, you'll notice that the prices continue to go up and the portion size in terms of their food continues to go down, which by definition means margins will continue to improve. So I think you can stay with the long Starbucks trade despite valuation, which seems a bit stretched here. All right, so Karen, Dan, either of you guys like I'm the long. Starbucks? Are you long and you're going to stay that way? Yeah, even though it's expensive. I mean, for, I think the margin story, we've seen it play out writ large in, in CMG, right? But I think it's, it applies here as well, so I'm staying long. I brew at home. Yeah, <laughs> I know you do. No, I do. I know you do. In that, that fancy Keurig and whatever else <laughs> machine you got there. All right, for more on Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. It happens every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Don't miss it. A lot of great activity there with Mike Coe and the gang. Well, time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, what are we talking about in terms of your final trade? Well, let's stay here with Starbucks for a second because uh, I don't brew at home. I go out every day and I'm excited to go to Starbucks. I think a lot of people are, especially as the reopening trade. This is one of the great reopening trades. Also, $150 billion that's going to be handed out to consumers in the form of child credits and whatnot. I think Starbucks is going to get their, their share of that. So the multiple is tough, um, but their ability to expand on that, uh, I think, is, is very high. So I'm staying long, Starbucks. All right, Guy Adami. I'll stay in that world. We talked about a burrito blowout over the last couple weeks. Well, we're going to give you a couple egg McMuffins because McDonald's getting ready to break out to the upside into earnings, I believe, a week, week and a half from here. MCD, don't you? Golden Arches. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, I'm going with C, Citibank. Come on, Dan, you with me? Tomorrow. No, we'll see. Not. You're not. All right, Dan. Into earnings. <laughs> into earnings. I like that call. It's bold. It's Dan. bold. Well, no one can do anything until it comes out tomorrow morning. Hey, Tim mentioned the underperformance of the semiconductors over the last couple months versus the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. I like Taiwan Semi here. That is the biggest in the socks here, so I play that for a break out of this wedge. All right. Taiwan Semi, the call from Dan Nathan. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Keep it right here because Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.